You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Great to have you all here in the house of the Lord this morning. I hope you, you count this a joyous, a joyous day. Uh, my goodness, if you, can't, if you can't feel joy on Resurrection Sunday, regardless of what you're going through in your lives, and I know many of us carry some extraordinary burdens in the things we go through uh, in our lives right here and now, but, but when we focus on this day, you know, people, even people who have a passing knowledge of Christianity, they know that Christ died for the sins of the world. They know that he was risen on the third day, and and this is what we celebrate today. And and it's right that they should uh, focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins because that resurrection is simply the most important thing that has happened in the history of humanity. Jesus' resurrection from the dead establishes his identity. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ, okay? And, And his resurrection from the dead is the emphatic proof of that. His resurrection from the dead also establishes that his word is true. Every single word of Jesus' word is true because uh, those of you who belong to this church and have been here for a while, you've been studying in the book of John with us. And John chapter 1, verse 1, very first verse says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is so associated with his Word that he identifies himself through his Word. And so his resurrection establishes the truth of his Word. It also establishes his victory over sin and death. Let's face it, the the, the event that really we operate our lives in in view of is that one day we will die. Every one of us will die one day. And yet Jesus claimed victory over sin and death. And because of that, we have hope. We live in hope. And this is is what brings us to the fourth thing, really, that Jesus' resurrection establishes. It establishes that not only did he have victory over sin and death, But we have victory over sin and death. Much will be said today in all corners of the world about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. I don't know how much will be said about the fact that the Bible says that we have been crucified with Christ. And we are risen with Christ. We are crucified with Christ. We are arisen with Christ. Don't know how much is going to be said about that in the world today, but you guessed it. We're going to hear about it here this morning because I, I, want, to spend, I, I want to spend some time helping us understand very personally what the, resu- the, the crucifixion and resurrection means for us because Christ did it for us. He didn't do it to show off. He didn't do it because it was enjoyable. It was unbelievably and unimaginably painful and torturous. He did it for us. And so here's here's what we're going to focus on this morning. First of all, I want to give you just a quick understanding of the truth of the resurrection because everything about our faith hangs on it. We're not going to have a full-blown apologetic on the truth of the resurrection, but I want to give you the central 
historic fact that establishes its truth. And then I want to move quickly to what the Bible says and what the Bible means concerning the fact that we have been crucified with Christ. It's a kind of a scary thought. But we have been crucified with Christ. Remember, it's not possible to be resurrected with Christ unless you've died with Christ first. And then finally, we're going to look at the significance of being risen with Christ. Our text for this morning, although we're going to hit a number of different places in Scripture to establish the points, but for, for a setting, a context, if you would, stand with me. We're going to read out of Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be between verses 3 and 14. And I, I picked this passage because it speaks to both our death in, in Christ, our being crucified with Christ, and then being risen with Christ. So here's what it says. Or do you not know that as many as us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace." Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we are under grace. We are people of grace. We stand here today drawing a breath because of your grace. We look forward to human or to uh, eternal life because of your grace. We escape the penalty of our sins because of your mercy. We pray, Lord, that as you promised, your spirit would move in us this morning and give us deep understanding of what it means to be crucified with Christ but also to be risen with Christ. Lord, this morning as, as your servant to share these words with your people, Lord, pl please protect my lips, Lord. Protect my spirit, God, that it would be in full communion with your spirit, that nothing I would say would detract from what you want to say here this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, obviously this is Resurrection Sun Sunday, and, and so it's appropriate that I mention uh, or that I at least uh, direct you to what Paul the Apostle mentions concerning the centrality of the resurrection. Paul was the resurrection guy. He was the guy who, who told churches that I profess to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Paul also said this in 1 Corinthians 15, 14. He said, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. You see, we'd have nothing to celebrate. We'd have nothing to look forward to. We would have hope in nothing at all if the resurrection is not true. 
Because we know, as I mentioned at the outset, that, that death is in all of our futures. We have all sinned, the Bible tells us. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that sin is death. And it's only through the truth of the resurrection that we know that our spirit and our soul will live for eternity. And that the day, the appointed day will come when our, our bodies, whether they be in the grave or alive on the earth, will be joined with our spirit and soul in a glorified state. And we will live on in glory with the Lord. But how do we really know that Christ is risen? You realize that that, that one fact has more heat and, 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 and pressure put upon it by secular historians and, and theologians who have gone off the rails and skeptics all over the world. They have, they have questioned and they have denied the central fact of our faith, which is that Jesus Christ was risen from the dead. And so you, you'd say, well, what, what could you refer to to stop the mouths of the skeptics concerning the resurrection of Christ? I would urge you to turn them to the idea that anything, how do we know that anyone or anything happened in the ancient past? Why, the only way you could prove it is with historic proofs. What are historic proofs? It's testimony about what happened or who existed from reliable witnesses, their truth being established by their circumstance. This is the only way we know that George Washington lived, that Caesar Augustus lived, that Homer wrote the Iliad. How do we know these things? Because of historic proofs based upon testimony of witnesses deemed reliable. And so rather than break this down and establish every little corner of this basic truth, let me just give you the best source of historic proof you can find in the Bible that is absolutely rock solid. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 8. Paul the Apostle, speaking to the Corinthian church, said this, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Now stopping right there, those are the essential facts that he's telling them, I bring you. I bring you the fact that, first of all, that Christ lived, that Christ died for our sins, the Scriptures said he would, that he was buried, the burial of Christ is important because it proves he was indeed dead. And that he was raised from the dead. Now here comes the proof of those three facts. He was seen by Cephas, that would be Peter. Then by the twelve, the twelve apostles. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles, then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. So now you have a string of witnesses that includes 500 people at one time and 14 people that are mentioned here, including the apostles, who are witnesses who then went on to share that truth for 40 years, never recanting at once, were beaten were persecuted, were stoned for that testimony, never changed a word, and virtually every one of them died a horrible martyr's death, again, never changing the story. Now, if you want to understand that as a historic, the quality of that as a, a historic fact, I, I, I want to just relate to you this. 
Some of you who are alive and conscious of what was going on during the Watergate years, during the, the presidency of Richard Nixon, right? And, and Nixon's guys kind of broke into the Watergate Hotel and they were trying to get information on the opponents, etc. Sounds very eerily like some of the things. <laughs> anyway, um, but one of the men who was involved in that, he was, a, he was an attorney for the president. His name was Charles Colson. Chuck Colson did prison time for his role in Watergate. In prison, he got saved. This is why we value so highly the Free in Christ prison ministry that we're partnered with, because you never know which one of those men in that prison is going to change the world because of their experience with Christ in prison. Chuck Colson was one of those guys. Listen to what he said, and I hope I don't mess up my whole uh, thing here, but listen to what he said about the proof of the resurrection based on the facts I just related out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Apologize, that might be hard to read, but listen to me. I know the resurrection is a fact, says Colson, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. That speaks to the reliability of these witnesses. These men literally died for the truth that they knew. And so we know that Christ indeed was crucified and that Christ indeed was raised from the dead. Which brings us now to the central point of our time together this morning. The Bible tells us, I was crucified with Christ. We look back at our text. Verse 3, or don't you know that as many as us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death, death by, uh, by crucifixion. Uh, verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. Uh, verse verse uh, 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. You, you, you see how the Bible is, is speaking to us about the fact that we were crucified with Christ. Now, you might ask yourself, uh, is the Bible speaking literally here? I mean, none of us were around 2,000 years ago to be on a cross next to Christ. Hey, I woke up this morning, looked in the mirror, and I said, good, I don't look a day over 100. I mean, we were, obviously, we weren't there, so the Bible is speaking metaphorically is speaking symbolically concerning this crucifixion that of Christ endured in reality but we endure symbolically what is that what does that mean to us well if we think about what actually occurred on the Christ uh, on the cross Christ was put on the cross with every sin of every human being ever to have lived Every one of us in this room, our sins were there on Calvary over 2,000 years ago, contained in the body and blood of Christ, past, present, future. All of our sins, past, present, future. Christ died in paying the penalty for those sins. Those sins have been paid in full. An end to the power of that over us occurred an end to the penalty 
of that occurred because it's been paid. One of the things that Jesus said from the cross is to Telestai, it is finished. He didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. What is finished? The dominion of sin and death over humanity. And so, so we could say that we have been, when we have been crucified with Christ, as he was, we have been released from the power of sin and we have been released from the penalty of sin. Let's look at those. You know, people who live, first of all, let's look at the release from the power of sin. People who live apart from Christ often brag about their freedom to do whatever they want. They look at Christians, they say, you, you guys live a, a horrible life. You live a narrow life. You live a, 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 a life that, that excludes all of the wonderful pleasures of the world. And, and they say that with, with great bravado, but they, they're missing the point that when they say they're free to do something, being free to do something must carry with it, by definition, the freedom not to do it, right? Yeah. You know, sometimes I think I'm free not to eat ice cream, or to eat ice cream. But, but I've discovered that I'm actually a slave to ice cream because I'm often not free to refuse it. You know, if you're free to do something, you must be free not to do it. And Paul the Apostle, in speaking about people before they come to Christ, he said this in Romans 6.16. It's the same chapter we're in, but it was not part of the verses we covered. He said, do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey... You are that one's slaves when you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. So you think about it, before we come to Christ, we only have one nature. Our passage this morning calls it the old man or the old woman, depending on whether you're male or female. And possessing that only that, only that one nature means we are slaves to that nature. We can only act within that nature. It's a sin nature. And so in every respect, we are ruled by the passions and the lusts of the flesh because that's all we are. That's all we are before we come to Christ. We are slaves to that. Uh, if we look at our passage, he says there in verse 4 of our passage, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We, even we, should also walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. We should no longer walk, uh, no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. What we find there is that Whereas previously we were trapped in a nature of sin, that, that would mean that our lives focused on that. Our desires were on things that were against God. What he's telling us here is that because that old man has been crucified with Christ, we have been freed and we are recipients of a new nature. Now all of a sudden we're not just exclusively a person bound in a sin nature. We have been given something more. Paul wrote of it in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, when he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. You see that transition there? When we are living apart from God, all we have is a sin nature. It's what Paul calls there the old man. 
That old man does what the old man does. Cats do as cats do. Dogs do as dogs do. Dogs don't do as canaries do because they have a dog nature, not a canary nature. I've seen cats, by the way, that do things that dogs do, and I've seen dogs that do things that cats do, but they're just play acting here. But we now have a new nature. Paul declares that the old man is dead. And look at verse 7 of our text. For he who has died has been freed from sin. I think it's a well-known fact that dead people don't sin. Dead people have never been pulled over for speeding. (laughs) Dead people have never been picked up for shoplifting. They have been picked up for voting in certain precincts in Chicago. (laughs) But but they don't commit sin because they're not, that nature is no, that person is no longer animated. They are no longer in a position to sin. They can't break a law because they can't act. And what Paul is telling us is that, look, when, when we identify with Christ, we are saying that, Jesus, you put my sins to death on the cross. I'm no longer going to be controlled by those sins. I'm no longer going to have the power of sin reign in my life. I don't have to anymore. I have a new nature. So that's what it means to be released from from the power of of sin over our lives. But but there's more to it because we're released from the penalty of sin. Look at verse 8 of our text. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with Christ, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, the law of Moses was given to God's people to lay out before them the righteous standard of God. Okay, here's the law. This defines righteousness, and contravention of that defines sinfulness, lawlessness. And Paul would say in his writings that you know why the law was given? so that you know you can't keep it. The law was given to to God's people to show them that, okay, you do not have within you, within you, apart from Christ, you do not have within you the requisite righteousness to live in accordance with God's standard. None of us have that. There are people we encounter in our lives and we look at them and we venerate them and we say, this was an exemplary person. This is a godly man or woman. And perhaps they are, but it won't be because of them. It'll be because Christ lives through them. You better hope that's the case. Once the law was, sin was not possible to be accounted for before the law was given because without a standard, there's no law breaking. You play a game without rules, everything is permissible. But once the rules are established, there's the right side of the law and there's, there's the lawless side of the law. And so once having established that we cannot keep the law, without Christ coming, we're all condemned to death. We're all con- and, and by the way, it wasn't Christ condemning us to death. We were condemned already. We are all condemned people before Christ before Christ is in our lives. But then having identified with Christ on the cross, according to our passage, we read that we have been freed from the penalty of sin. He tells us that now we're free to live for God. 
Because we no longer have the penalty of sin hanging over us. Death is not our future now. We have been born twice, but we'll die only once, and it'll be a physical death, not a spiritual one. Before Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior, we're born once, but then we die twice. We die physically, and ultimately we die spiritually. But we have been freed from the penalty of death because of the fact that Christ has freed us. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, now in spite of all the strictures of the law, we have been given the righteousness of Christ. It has been imputed to us. We didn't earn it. There's nothing we could do to establish it in our lives. But we have been given it. And what we're told here is that we should reckon ourselves dead to sin. That is, let's calculate, consider, and establish that sin is dead, that we are dead to sin. It does not control us. It does not have power over us. And it does not impose penalty upon us. Now, some might look at that and say, yippee, I can set it up because the penalty no longer sticks to me. And that would be a monstrous offense to God. You would be trampling his grace. The very thought of that might indicate that you never truly gave your heart to him in the first place. Because a heart that has been redeemed from the penalty of sin, which is death, is a grateful, thankful heart that wants to serve the one who made that possible. So that's what it means to be crucified with Christ. It means that we are free from the power that sin could have over our lives. You know, it's funny because people who live apart from Christ usually have two different postures. I think there's only two. One is a callous disregard for anything of God. They live and sin with impunity. When God is mentioned, they shake their fist and they say, God, if you exist, this one's for you or or whatever their, their sinful behavior is. There are people who go on YouTube to make YouTube videos just for the point of blaspheming God on those videos. So that's one posture you can take. Callous disregard for all things of God. The other is this, desperately trying to please God. Desperately trying to live a holy life. Establishing or thinking they're establishing right standing with God through their own efforts. And that's a fool's errand. To try and establish right standing with God in our own righteousness is a fool's errand. can never happen. It's only when we reckon ourselves dead to sin and say, sin has no more power over my life and I am free from the penalty. That's when we're free to live for God. Which brings us to our, our third and final point, which is what does it mean to be risen with Christ? If the old man no longer lives, then it is Christ who lives in us. Look at verses 4 and 5 of the text. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. And then down in verse 8 it says, If we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Now, 
these verses, having established that we're identified with his death, now tell us that we live in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul said this in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, you see that transition there? Okay, before I had one nature. It was a sin nature. I lived within that nature. My actions, my thoughts, my words emanated from that nature. Now, that man being dead, it's no longer I who live in the flesh, but it's Christ who lives in me and through me. And that's what it means to be living the risen life. What does that look like? What does it look like to live the risen life? Well, the first thing it means is that you are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. Now you look around the room and you realize, "Mm, no, I'm sitting in a post office distribution center with all these people and I don't see Jesus among us. What does that mean? Well, when I say positionally we are seated with Christ, I mean that you have all the Benefits, the inheritance, the right to be in heaven. You are citizens of heaven now. It would be, to make a crude analogy, it would be like you're a member of our Congress. There is a seat in the House of Congress that has your name on it. You have the full authority and all the rights and benefits appertaining thereto. As a member of Congress, your spot is there. You just happen to be in your home district drumming up more support. But your position in Congress is firm, established. Paul says in in, uh, Ephesians 2, 4 and 6, he says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice, for those of you grammar hounds, this is, this, is, this is something that's happened in the past and the status is a present possession. You've been seated with Christ in the heavenlies as of the point at which you established your faith in him to be, for him to be your Lord and your Savior. At that point, you are established and seated in the heavenlies with Christ Jesus. Yes, you have a period of time left to live your life on the earth. But your position is in heaven. You're a citizen of heaven. This is what it means to be risen in Christ in that respect. Now, there's more to it. Your position is in heaven. you got a life to live here on earth. So we ask the question, how then shall we live? I direct you to verses uh, 12 through 14 of our text. What does it say there? Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. Now, let me just stop there for a second and point out. Verse 12 clearly makes the the point that although our old man is dead in terms of power and, and penalty of sin, it still resides within us, doesn't it? Saved people can still sin. We, we now have two natures. And whichever nature we feed, that is the nature that will control If we allow our life to be uh, directed at and consuming 
lustful things and sinful things, the old man is going to rise up. If, on the other hand, our attention is on the things of the Lord, why then we're directed by and we're identified by that heavenly nature. So he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Don't let it control. Don't put it on the throne that you should obey its lusts. And do not present your members, that would be your physical body, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. To live the risen life is to say, sin, you will no longer have reign over my mortal body. Whereas once you were the only game in town, I have a new nature. I'm a new creation. I choose Christ. I surrender that old nature. I promote my new nature. I don't allow my actions nor my countenance to convey sin to those around me. I desire to live in the victory that Christ won for me. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that there are, there are those in our day who, uh, in the name of, of, of religion, I wouldn't even say in the name of Christ, but in the name of religion, they seek to draw people to church, shall we say, by aping the world. By that I mean they, they, they try and make the church look less and less like something that's set apart and exclusively God's and more and more like other places that people of the world might go. And I don't mean to be critical or or judgmental. I, I really don't. But if you ever find yourself desiring to reach people for Christ, but wishing to bury all the things about you that reflect Christ, be careful. Be careful. Because Jesus wasn't ashamed of his message. He died for it. The apostles weren't ashamed of Christ's message. They died for it. The people living in Sri Lanka and Nigeria who are surrounded by people of different faiths who hate them for their faith, they went to church on Easter Sunday and they died for it. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, when people see me, do they see Christ? When people hear me, do they hear Christ? Or do they hear me aping the world, hoping that at some point when they're not looking, I can hook them around to the gospel? We don't do that here. We've never done that here. We will never do that here. We will teach the Bible. We will preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. And if there's 100 people here... A thousand people here, or ten people here, or me and our cat. We don't have a cat. See, I'll be alone. <laughs> That's what we will do. One last place I want you to look, because this to me was the whole inspiration for bringing our attention on this idea of being risen with Christ today. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, first uh, four verses, and we're, we're going to probably wrap it up here. This is the way I I would pray that every one of you leaves today and thinking this, locking this away in your heart, wanting to live for this. This is what Paul says there. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, we've just established that in Romans chapter 6, that we were, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting, 
sitting at the right hand of God. Remember, being, be, being, uh, living in the risen life means you're seated there with Christ too. You're seated there with Christ. If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. I do not read this to you with the thought that that is an easy thing to do. You know, in in the day and age in which we live, we are beset by two things that work against that very uh, thing. Set your mind on things above. We have the worst possible things going on, and at the same time, we have the greatest luxuries and benefits that people have ever known in the history of the world. We, We are a more blessed nation than any nation ever to have lived. There is more wealth in the poorest among us than there are in in probably 90% of most of the world. And so we can have our minds fixed on more stuff, better stuff, reflecting on the greatness of our stuff, living on Amazon, finding more stuff. Or we could be reflecting on some of the horrible things that are going on in our world, the barriers between downright sinfulness and evil and what was considered mainstream good are eroding quickly. It wasn't enough that we would kill babies in the womb. Now we're going to kill them after they're born. It wasn't enough that, uh, you know, people would live lifestyles that were against what the Bible taught, but now they're mainstream and brought into the church. And so your mind can be on all these different things And you can be so overwhelmed with materialism and idolatry, which were the very things that the Jewish people were caught up up in when, when God ultimately took them into captivity. And you could forget about heaven altogether, even as a saved person. Paul knows that. So he instructs us here, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth, for you died. We're all here at at a funeral, ours. We died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, as we think about this, living a resurrected life, risen with Christ, we know sin does not have power over us. We know that sin will not inflict on us the ultimate penalty. Christ took care of that. We died with Christ. We were crucified with him. But we were also risen with him. It is no longer I who live in the flesh, but Christ who lives in me. How can I make that real in my life? This is what I've been asking myself all week. And then we were studying with the men on Tuesday night in Hebrews chapter 4, and we were talking about rest. The decision you have to make To come to Christ is belief in who he is. I believe in Christ. But in order to have the rest for the rest of the story, which is the rest of your life, it's not enough that I believe in God. I have to believe God. It's that simple. Hey, I, I believe in God. That's how I got saved. But do I believe God? Do I believe that I'm risen with Christ? Do I believe that I'm seated in the heavenly places? Do I believe that sin has no more dominion over me? Do I believe that I'm free from the penalty of sin? 
I must believe these things. How do I believe these things? I must surrender. The old man was put to death on the cross, but he still resides within me. If I fail to take God at his word, that old man will carry on. The echoes of the old man will take over. If I surrender my flesh, which has been crucified, and allow Christ to live in me and through me, I walk in victory. I put that on me. I can't answer these questions for you. But I I would urge you today, you answer these questions for you. Do you believe in God? If you do, have you prayed to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you haven't, there will be people here to pray with you this morning. I will be here to pray with you this morning. To pray you into the kingdom. If you are currently a member of the kingdom or you joined the kingdom today, will you commit to not only believe in God, but believe God? You have to surrender once and for all that old man, old woman. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up right now. And we're going to do a communion song appropriately. I surrender. And, be, and as they're coming up, um, you know, we look at that passage we studied this morning in Romans chapter 6, and you might look at that and say, why, that describes what goes on in the baptism ritual. We die, we, we identify with the death of Christ, we identify with his risen life. That's what baptism signifies when you go down into the water and then you come back out. And that's one of the great ordinances that Christ gave the church. The baptism ordinance is something Jesus gave us to do. It's not a condition of salvation, but it is something we do as evidence of salvation to show that we identify with his death, we identify with his life. He gave us one and only one other ordinance, and that is the one we're about to partake in, communion. He gave us very simple elements, bread and wine, The bread signifying his broken body, a body that was broken for us to pay that ultimate penalty. He gave us the the wine, which represents the, the poured out blood of Christ, the blood that took away our sins. These things he said, do in remembrance of me. What about that would we remember? Well, we would remember that he's gracious, merciful, and loving, but we would also remember that he did that for us, that we might be dead to sin and risen with Christ to live in the newness of life. This morning, as you take the communion elements, bring to Christ those things that you carry that separate you from him. We all carry sin around in our, in our, in our souls and spirits because we walk in a filthy place. But God says, if you confess your sins... He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. He wants to do that this morning. So lay those things at the foot of the cross and pledge to him, I surrender that old person, that old man or woman. I desire to live for you and you alone. So you can uh, take those elements as you will. I'm just going to close the Bible study with a word of prayer and then we will uh, go into communion. Father God, we thank you, Lord for how richly you love us, for all that you did to, to free us from the power and penalty of sin.
We thank you, God, that you have opened the way to a new and a new and living way that we might live not only in heaven with you, but also on earth, to live the risen life on earth that others might see your glory and want it too. Lord, we lay before you now all of the junk of the world that we carry around, Lord. We pray, God, that we would not be misdirected to the things of the world, not, not only its pleasures, but also its pain. And we would fix our minds on things above where Christ sits because we are seated there in the heavenlies according to the promises of your word. We love you, God. We surrender to you. To you. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor David Marini. If you enjoy the message, you can learn more about Pastor David's ministry by visiting calvarychapelchapelhill.org.